Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Now that we've finished the Iliad, we can move on to the other great Homeric epic, namely the Odyssey. But we're not going to spend nearly as much time in the Odyssey as we did in the Iliad. Um, to start, we're not even going to be using the full text uh, of the Odyssey. Um, like I said, you know, I had to go through quite a few somersaults to kind of justify teaching the entirety of the Iliad. Like, I have obviously had that whole, like, half of a lecture where I'm sitting there talking about, you know, why would I teach the boring parts of the Iliad. Um, the reason why that's even sort of a conversation is because we do have alternatives here. And uh, Stanley Lombardo, as part of his whole translation project, um, released a book called The Essential Homer, which was basically half of the Iliad and half of the Odyssey, strategically chosen. Um, and then eventually he realized that that was actually more popular than the original one, more professors were teaching it, or more high school teachers were teaching it, whoever it was. Um, and he ended up releasing individual copies, the Essential Iliad and the Essential Odyssey, to cover just those books. So we are working from the Essential Odyssey this time around. Um, and what I should stress about the Essential Odyssey is that it is, again, Lombardo's translation. So we're using, again, the same sort of assumptions about translation. We're still in functional territory. We're still in an effort to, you know, capture the rhythms, the, the sort of poetry and the very like, fierce sort of language that um, Lombardo has been using throughout his translation. Um, but importantly, we've cut the book in half. Uh, Lombardo has strategically excised vast swaths of the Odyssey, and in fact, I kind of like his expurgations of the Odyssey even more than I like his expurgations of the Iliad and the essential Iliad. Um, like, when he cuts stuff from the Odyssey, he tends to cut it in real big chunks, which makes it really convenient to sort of navigate around. Uh, but the bad news is that the Odyssey is actually way harder to cut from. Um, it's even more of a sort of cogent and, and like, complete story all by itself. And that's why a lot of professors actually prefer teaching it. Um, the Odyssey is way more accessible in many ways. It conforms to a lot of modern understand or modern perspectives on literature and on how writing is supposed to work in a way that the Iliad just doesn't. Like the Iliad is more than happy to shelve its primary characters for like two thirds of the book. It is more than happy to just grind for like you know the entire second act or what we might call the second act. Um, it is more than happy to bounce back and forth between the sort of drama amongst the gods and the drama amongst humans. Whereas the Odyssey really doesn't do that so much. The Odyssey starts by examining the adventures of Telemachus as he's looking for his dad. And then we jump back to Odysseus himself, who is, you know, hanging out in an island, and we follow his adventures for a while. Um, and those are the two places that we jump back and forth. The gods are going to be weirdly absent for a lot of this story. The only god that we're going to really see a great deal of is Athena. Um, and in fact, the passages that we've read for today, where, you know, Athena and Zeus are having debates and Poseidon figures out what's going on and, you know, Hermes is bouncing back and forth, like, that's more divine interaction than we're going to see in most of this book. We will occasionally get references to Zeus doing things, but importantly, the Odyssey is much more from a mortal standpoint. 
Um, and like I said, that makes it typically makes it more accessible to modern readers who aren't as familiar with the Homeric pantheon mucking about the human's business. Um, but again, since it is one cogent story, cutting stuff is harder. And then the fact that, you know, Lombardo has done all this cutting and then I am further cutting because we're not even going to read the entirety of the Essential Odyssey, short as it may be, um, I've kind of had as my rule of thumb throughout designing this course that, you know, students are going to be able to read 100 pages of Lombardo's translation per week and no more. Um, so we are, in fact, dropping about 50 pages of the Essential Odyssey, like we'll be cutting here and there as well. Um, but importantly, the stuff that I would normally cut, we're not cutting this time. Um, usually when I teach this in my mythology class, I drop the whole scene that we read today where Telemachus shows up in Menelaus's court and gets briefed on where his father is. But we're talking about Troy and the Trojan War here. That is our primary goal. We come from a pretty sophisticated knowledge of the Iliad as these things go. And my main reason in coming to the Odyssey is to use this as an opportunity to see where those characters ended up which means we got to talk about Menelaus, and we've got to talk about Agamemnon, and to some degree Little Ajax, and we've got to talk about what Helen is up to these days. And honestly, I'm so happy to do that because Helen is friggin' fascinating in the Odyssey. Like, even more than she was in the Iliad because we get a much more robust picture of her in that one little chunk of, of Book 4 of the Odyssey. Um... But again, I should stress, we're going to miss a lot, is kind of what it comes down to. The great thing about reading the Iliad cover to cover is that, you know, at the end of the day, if you missed something, that's on you. Because you read the whole thing. It was all there. It's all there in your hands. Um, the Odyssey, however, we're not going to be so lucky. There's a lot of chunks that we're going to jump over. There's a lot of chunks that we're going to skip. We're going to hit all the major stuff that people tend to talk about the most, but we are going to be bopping around plot-wise quite a bit, and I'm just going to have to fill you in when, you know, we make a particularly egregious jump, like we are actually doing between this lecture and the next lecture, since we're skipping books 6 to 8, which kind of are important for setting up what's going on in 9 to 12. Um, but we'll get, that, get to that in its own right. For all of this talk and for all of the sort of distinctions between the Odyssey and the Iliad, I should stress that the same rules do apply, though. We're going to see the same Homeric epithets. We're going to see the same interest in character and big, long speeches where characters, like, bear their souls to each other. Um, we're going to do, we are, in fact, going to see supernatural interactions with human lives. Um, but importantly, while many of those rules are the same, and we are going to be starting with some of those sim similar rules, um, we should also recognize that some of the rules are different here. The Odyssey has different themes and different values and different ideas that it's interested in interrogating. War is not going to be just the background noise of this text the way that it was in the Iliad. Um, we had scene after scene after scene of dudes just beating the shit out of each other in the Iliad, and that's not going to be here in the Odyssey. Instead, you'll, the patterns become even more obvious as a consequence, because there isn't just this one overwhelming pattern that we're seeing over and over again. 
Um, so we'll talk about those primary themes and what they mean and how they inform both the, what the stuff that the text is talking about and the way the text talks about it in the case of the Odyssey. So with that in mind, let's start with the obvious one. Um, when we talked about the Iliad, I told you right out, Homer likes to put his initial major theme right at the beginning as the first word of the text. And we are in no different waters here. We once again lead with our major theme. Speak memory of the coming hero, the wanderer, blown off course time and again after he plundered Troy's sacred heights. Speak of all the cities he saw, the mines he grasped, the suffering deep in his heart at sea as he struggled to survive and bring his men home, but could not save them hard as he tried, the fools, destroyed by their own recklessness when they ate the oxen of Hyperion the sun, and that god snuffed out their day of return. So... We are kind of a little confused here because, again, while rage was definitely the first word of the Iliad and rage was the primary theme of the Iliad, here we have something different. Speak memory. Now, we should mention memory is referring to more than just the concept of remembering things. Memory is, in fact, one of the muses. Um, and as we talked about in the Iliad, and as you can see in a lot of Greek poetry, especially in the Greek epics and, you know, Hesiod and Homer and so on and so forth, um, memory and the muses are who you invoke when you're going to tell a story. Um, this is how you get the gods to sort of help you out when you are delivering all of this narrative. In the same way that we've seen, you know, hero after hero in the Iliad, dropping a libation or performing a sacrifice before they tie their shoes in the morning. Same here, we are invoking memory to inspire us to tell the true version of events, to tell the way, tell the story the way that the gods perceive it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not a theme. Memory is the person we are talking to. Tell us memory about Odysseus. Tell us about the wanderer who took so long in coming home. But also, tell us about memory. Um, tell us what memory is. And as much as rage was a really concrete theme that we could sort of like grab onto and examine throughout the Iliad, memory is going to be a lot slipperier. Um, because for the Greeks, memory ties into a lot of different ideas, a lot of different concepts, a lot of different sort of sub-themes of what memory in fact, in fact involves. This is essentially... A story about the past, um, which is kind of weird because we are going to have like actual events transpiring in front of our eyes the same way that we saw in the Iliad. But the Odyssey is going to be a lot more about recollection, a lot more about telling each other what happened in, because we don't know what happened. Um, a lot of the time, the biggest and most exciting stuff that happens in the Odyssey is going to be either seriously informed by or actually happened in the past. Um, so as much as this is, you know, an epic in its own right, it is an epic that is very much composed of many smaller stories, many smaller things that happened leading up to this point. This is the culmination. This is the big climax. This is the last word in the story of all these Greeks coming home from the Trojan War. And you'll notice that that whole idea of the homecoming is kind of one of our other big themes here. And it is also something that's kind of hanging over the whole text, start to finish. 
Like, the bards are all singing about the Greeks coming home from the war. Odysseus, as the last to come home from the war, is very much bumping into all of the other people who did, in fact, come home earlier than he did, and their adventures and what happened to them along the way. And as much as this is Odysseus's story, you'll note that we'll spend a lot of time on side trips talking about, you know, what happened when Agamemnon came home, or what happened when Menelaus came home, or what happened when little Ajax came home. Which, remember, a lot of these folks either didn't make it home, or weren't even alive to, like, go home from the Trojan War. Remember that Achilles, Ajax, you know, Patroclus, they're all legit dead before the Trojan War actually concludes. Um, Odysseus is kind of just stumbling his way home at the last possible minute, and he is going to have to deal with both his own delays and also what has happened to all of the other characters along the way. Which means that the first thing that we need to really watch out for, the first way that memory as a theme manifests in this book, and possibly one of the most obvious, is storytelling. The Odyssey is a book about books, in some sense. It is a story about stories. It is an epic poem that is very much involved and invested in the business of telling epic poetry. You're going to see a lot of bards stand up and deliver speeches or poems in their own right. You're going to have a lot of characters with interesting backstories deliver long, involved narratives about what happened to them in the past. Storytelling is one of the primary ways that we are going to access this idea of memory, and it is one of the primary ways that Homer is going to be delivering all of the story that we've missed so far. Because, like the Iliad, the Odyssey starts in medias res, right in the middle. Like, we're not even starting with, you know, it's day one after Troy has fallen, what are all of the, you know, heroes doing as they're bumming around the ruins of the city? No. We're starting, once again, nine years into the homecoming. Only where the Iliad was kind of, you know, like, just one chunk of the ninth year. It is neither the beginning of this story nor the end of this story, but just something about two-thirds of the way through. The Odyssey really is the end. Um, like, there is, in fact, another set of stories to be told after the Odyssey, which really do close out the whole Trojan cycle in some respect. Many refer to the, what is it, the Telegoni, um, as, like, the big concluding epic that would have really shut this thing out. Um, but notably, that's not something that Homer seems to be terribly aware of. Like, you can go through this entire book and not get a whole lot of references to the whole business of Odysseus's bastard son tracking him down and murdering him. Like, that's not really a thing here. Um, it is maybe hanging over the text if you're looking really, really closely, but you'd have to do way more work to see that as something that Homer's talking about than you do to say, understand that the fall of Troy is hanging over the Iliad. Like, Homer is very, very keenly aware that Troy is going to fall. He reminds us about it very often. By contrast, this does seem to be, for all intents and purposes, the end of Odysseus's story, or at least the end of Odysseus's coming home story, since there is, in fact, a setup for more Odysseus stories to come. 
but all that is in the future. We're very much getting ahead of ourselves here. The key at this point is to watch for stories within stories. There is going to be a lot of Inception-type nonsense here, a lot of, you know, tales within tales within tales, people telling us stories of things that have happened before, things that have happened to them, lying about what happened to them, making up stories on the fly to sort of, like, fake somebody out or deceive them into doing what you want. It's going to be tricky that way. And in addition to all of this storytelling, we have this sort of overarching theme of memory, both controlling and, and also kind of distinct from it, existing separately and, and doing its own thing. Uh, but enough ambiguous nonsense. Let's actually dig into this text and start talking about what's really going on here. Uh, we may very much have cause to come back to this opening stanza, but... Not it's not going to be as immediately relevant as you know the whole business about rage and Zeus's will was done and so on from the Iliad. Um, there's a surprising amount of depth to this opening stanza, but it isn't going to be terribly apparent until we get later on in the book. So there's that. At any rate, we once again do in fact start with some gods bumping around. Like, apparently Odysseus has been away from home for a very long time, and Zeus and Athena are discussing the homecoming, and notice they're not even talking about Odysseus. They are preoccupied with Aegisthus and Agamemnon and Orestes, which, if you remember from our discussion of the uh, Trojan War section in Apollodorus, this was actually a really important story in its own right, and the Orestia is very much its own sort of epic narrative and epic story and has been immortalized in Aeschylus, and like there's a whole lot of Greek tradition surrounding it. This is the story that's actually hanging over the Odyssey in some really obvious and dramatic ways. And while, you know, the fall of Troy is hanging over the Iliad as something that's going to happen in the future that everyone knows is going to happen and may provide some sort of parallel to events that are taking place, you know, within the context of the Iliad, we should always be aware of the story of Agamemnon's homecoming as a sort of parallel and foil to the adventures of Odysseus. And, for that matter, we should also be looking at the story of Orestes as a parallel and foil for the adventures of Telemachus. So notice what we, we have here. The other gods, this is around line 33 of book one, the other gods were assembled in the halls of Olympian Zeus, and the father of gods and men was speaking. He couldn't stop thinking about Aegisthus, whom Agamemnon's son Orestes had killed. Mortals, Zeus says, they are always blame, blaming the gods for their troubles when their own witlessness causes them more than they were destined for. Take Aegisthus now. He marries Agamemnon's lawful wife and murders the man on his return, knowing it meant disaster, because we did warn him, sent our messenger, Quicksilver Hermes, to tell him not to kill the man and marry his wife, or Agamemnon's son Orestes would pay him back when he came of age and wanted his inheritance. Hermes told him all that, but his good advice meant nothing to Aegisthus. Now he's paid in full. Now, we're not going to get too deep into the story of Aegisthus and the Orestes and everything that is going on here. Um, but we are, we should definitely know, like, the basic beats. So, re you'll remember from our reading of Apollodorus that basically Agamemnon comes home from the war, and Clytemnestra, his wife, is still really friggin' mad at him about that time that he sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia to make the winds blow in his favor. So Clytemnestra has apparently taken up shop with this guy Aegisthus, 
who plots with her, and when Agamemnon comes home, they apparently, like, give him a shirt that doesn't have holes in it. So, like, a sack. And he puts the sack over his head, and while he's struggling to find the armholes, they, like, stab him multiple times, and he dies. Um, but, much as this plot seems to be, you know, totally flawless, what could possibly go wrong, Agamemnon's son Orestes sees all this go down, takes off in the middle of the night, comes back and murders Aegisthus and Clytemnestra both, at which point there's this whole trial thing, and, like, he has to deal with, you know, Athena's judgment, and it's a, it's a whole giant mess. And you'll notice that Zeus does seem kind of frustrated by all this. Like, what, why do these stupid mortals have to, have to do this? Like, we warned them that this was going to happen. This whole thing was a giant mess. Um, but notice that Athena sort of steers the conversation to her own problems. Yes, O our Father, who art most high, that man got the death he richly deserved, and so perish all who would do the same. But it's Odysseus I'm worried about, that discerning, ill-fated man. Remember, Athena and Odysseus are, for some reason, BFFs. Like, we've seen Athena team up with Odysseus and protect Odysseus multiple times over the course of the Iliad. And this relationship is actually going to be a huge deal in the Odyssey. Um, Athena absolutely is the patron and protectress of Odysseus throughout his various adventures. She will do all, he can, all she can to keep him alive, to keep him protected, to keep bad things from happening to him. And as much as she has been stymied by Poseidon up until this point, notice that this entire conversation is happening while Poseidon's away in Ethiopia, hanging out with the Ethiopians and receiving their sacrifices, which seems to be like the go-to convenient excuse for getting gods out of the way at one point or another throughout the Homeric epics. Like, you'll notice that Ethiopia was a great excuse for Hera back when she was trying to seduce Zeus in the Iliad. Um, so at any rate, Zeus is like, yeah, ten years is probably a long time for Odysseus to get sidelined, so let's bring him back. And Athena gets all her plans together. She dispatches Hermes to go talk to Calypso and to releasing him, and she herself goes and visits Telemachus. Now, let's talk setup here. We walk into a fairly complicated situation here in Ithaca, in Odysseus's home. Um, we've got Penelope and Telemachus, uh, Odysseus's wife Penelope and Telemachus, Odysseus's son. At this point, Telemachus is a young guy. He's in his 20s at this point, possibly late 20s, based on the fact that it's been like easily 20 years since all of this Trojan War shit has gone down. Like at this point, remember, the time it took from from Helen's abduction to the actual landing of the Greek ships at Troy was 10 years. The actual war that took place at Troy was 10 years. And the homecoming, or at least Odysseus's homecoming, takes another 10 years. So chances are Telemachus was conceived and born after Helen's abduction. That would make sense given the timeline, insofar as the Greeks actually give a shit about their timelines. Um, but Telemachus, at the very least, is probably in his 20s, doesn't remember his father very well, like Odysseus took off shortly after he was born, and kind of has a tough relationship as he's sorting this out. But honestly, he, his situation is not nearly as nasty as Penelope's at this point, though the two fates are very closely linked. So at this point, again... Everybody is home from the war, or at least 
it seems like everybody is home from the war. Agamemnon has come home and got murdered by Aegisthus. Um, little Ajax is definitely dead. Everybody knows this. Menelaus has been home for multiple years now. Um, many of the sort of like minor guys who showed up, presumably Idomeneus, although I'm not sure if Idomeneus bit it during the Iliad, um, are probably home. Neoptolemus is home. Like, generally speaking, everyone who went to the Trojan War is accounted for at this point. They either got killed during the war, and everybody knows it, or they got killed coming home, and the gods have revealed this to the relevant people, or they made it home and are either enjoying their life like Menelaus or got very murdered like Agamemnon. Um, in any case, if there's anyone who's still missing, they are presumed dead at this point. And at this point, that means just Odysseus. So, since Odysseus is missing, presumed dead, that makes Penelope an eligible wife and the queen of Ithaca at that. I.e., we have a Helen situation on our hands here. Here is this hot, awesome woman who has a whole lot of power and a whole lot of influence standing around without a husband on her arm. Which means somebody has got to marry this woman. Um, so all of these suitors start showing up. All of the various little minor kings of Ithaca, they send their you know, eldest or unmarried young men, their sons and stuff, to try and petition for Penelope's hand in marriage. If they do, in fact, marry her, that means that they get to rule Ithaca, which is friggin' awesome. They're married to this really hot woman. Remember that Penelope was actually, like, only marginally less hot than Helen, which is why Odysseus was so sneaky and smart for, like, agreeing to marry her and arranging all of this stuff for getting Helen married off, quote, safely. Oops, I guess that didn't turn out as well as Odysseus had hoped. Um, Penelope is a very eligible match then. And everybody wants a piece of that. But because Penelope is still holding out hope for Odysseus's return, nothing's moving as that far as that's concerned. Like the first handful of suitors show up saying like, hey baby, you want to rule Ithaca together? And she's like, hold your horses, I'm waiting for Odysseus to come back. And when it's year six or seven and most of the people have come back but not everybody's accounted for, it's understandable. Like, nobody questions Penelope's decision at that point. But it's year 10 now. These suitors have been sitting around Odysseus's house waiting for Penelope to make up her mind for several years at this point. And for that matter, more suitors are arriving all the time. So when we enter the story, the suitors are now a force to be reckoned with. There's over a hundred of them at this point, and they're all just bumming around Odysseus's house, sitting in his main room, basically eating and drinking their way through all of Odysseus's wealth, all of his flocks, all of his herds, all of his wine, all of his stuff. They're basically home records at this point. But as was the case with Helen, there are a lot of them, and they are dangerous especially for Penelope, who doesn't have her man at home to protect her. And Telemachus, Telemachus isn't standing up for himself. And for good reason at this point. The suitors started moving in and muscling into his territory when he was just like 20, 21 years old. He was too young to really figure out what the hell was going on or really be able to like fight them off or something. 
and for that matter, you know, they were there for quasi-legitimate reasons. You know, again, like, we don't know where Odysseus is. Maybe he's dead, maybe he's coming home, really, who can say? But now, now Telemachus is, you know, mid to late 20s, now he really could stand up for himself, and kind of should be at this point, but now there's a hundred angry suitors sitting around, you know, eating his father's food, drinking his father's booze, wrecking up his father's house, and if he stands up to them, they're going to fuck him up. Like, think about this from the suitor's perspective here. Every one of those dudes who is sitting there thinking to himself, I need to marry Penelope, is also thinking to himself, when I marry Penelope, the first thing I need to do is get rid of Telemachus so my sons will inherit Ithaca. So my progeny, my legacy will be the one that dominates this island and everyone in it. So those suitors are very much giving Telemachus the side eye on a regular basis. And as much as it is Telemachus's responsibility to stand up, be a man, protect his his mother, his family, his household, and his father's legacy, he's kind of not able to do that. And you kind of have to sympathize with his situation. He's in a bad way here. Telemachus is in a really tough spot. As much as Penelope is in a really tough spot, like she is basically like one step away from being raped every day, which... Yeah, I can see why she'd be paranoid and why she'd come up with every possible strategy to sort of stall the suitors in this situation. Telemachus is kind of on the verge of being assassinated at all times. This is a really dangerous situation for Telemachus and Penelope, and there doesn't seem to be a very obvious way out of it. Now, the solution that Penelope comes up with, and you gotta give her credit on this one, is, as we read about in Apollodorus, she comes up with this thing where she's apparently, like, weaving the shroud of Laertes. Like, she's putting together a funeral garment for Odysseus's father, Laertes, to wear. Now, Laertes is not in the house. He's apparently taken up some hermitage on the outskirts of the, the, like, estate. So he's very much not in the picture for most of this book. We will bump into Odysseus's dad, Laertes, way later. Like, not until book 24. Um... But he isn't really in the picture here. He's too old to defend the household. The suitors probably don't like seeing him around since he does represent the actual lineage here. And he can't very well marry Odysseus's dad and turn it into an empire. Um, so he, for the safety of the family and for the safety of himself, is just kind of far away. But Penelope, in preparing for Laertes' death, because he is an old dude now, remember that he gave, you know, he's Odysseus' dad, and Odysseus has been away for 30 years, so we're talking like 70s, maybe even 80s at this point. Penelope weaves this shroud and says, I'm not going to get married until it's done. And the suitors are like, okay, that sounds reasonable. But sneakily, Penelope is sneaking back into the loom room every night and undoing all of the progress she makes every day. So she is stalling them for months, even years. Now, as we'll find out a little bit later, but it's kind of relevant to the story that we talk about it now, the suitors have recently figured this out, and they are mad about it, and for fairly good reason. Like, they recognize that they've been tricked, the Penelope has been stalling them, and they're like, okay, enough of this shit. Who are you going to pick? Who's going to marry you? You know, stop stalling, stop acting like there's something else going on. Odysseus is not coming home, so come on. Let, let, let's pick up the pace here. 
Um, I want to be ruling Ithaca, and if I'm not going to do it, then one of my friends is, and you know that's all there is to it. So when Athena shows up in Ithaca, presumably to like help get the plot moving here and to sort of figure out what's going on with Telemachus and Penelope and all the rest of the household, this is what she walks into. She walks into this enormously complicated, quasi-domestic, quasi-political mess where all of the household is either basically kowtowing to the suitor's will, betraying Odysseus's original intentions, or they are desperately holding out in fear of their lives at all times. And this is a big deal. One of the major themes that we are going to run into again and again in this book is loyalty. And Odysseus is going to have some pretty impressive rewards for the people who are loyal to him throughout this really tough situation, but he's also going to have some pretty nasty punishment to dole out to those who were disloyal, to those who betrayed Telemachus and Penelope, to those who have, you know, helped the suitors especially, or who have kind of given in to the suitors' demands. Now, we'll talk about that more when we actually get to the punishment and everything that's going on there. For now, suffice it to say, we've got an ugly political situation going on in Odysseus's living room. Um, and... It's very fraught. These decisions will have far-reaching consequences. So Athena shows up. And notice that as soon as Athena does show up, she comes in disguise. She is disguised as Mentes, the Taphian captain, who has apparently got this elaborate backstory. And this is yet another thing that you're going to have to watch out for. Disguises. Uh, both Athena and Odysseus are big fans of walking into an uncertain situation in disguise. And usually those disguises involve, you know, an elaborate costume change of some kind, but more usually they involve telling stories to one another. When people are like, hey, who are you? The response is, well, I'm Mentes, I'm the Tafian captain, I bumped into your father while I was, you know, traveling to Troy or whatever. Um, here is my backstory, here is this information. It is all total bullshit, but it is also plausible. Um, and what's more, it's going to also move the story along. So keep an eye out for those disguises, and importantly, notice how those disguises inform both the character who is doing the disguise, how it shows us something about them, like Athena here taking on the role of Mentes, the Taphian captain. Notice that Athena seems to feel more comfortable disguising herself as a man than she is comfortable disguising herself as a woman, at the very least because men can do stuff that women can't in this culture. So, you know, again, misogynistic culture, but a fairly even-handed and, and egalitarian reading of that misogynist culture, as we've come to expect from Homer. Um, notice, too, though, that she's going to specifically kind of construct her disguise to help move things along. Namely, in this case, she's going to give Telemachus some advice about finding her, finding his dad, um, something that Mentes, in theory, would be able to do. Um, now, notice, though, that when she shows up, she basically shows up at the front door, and nobody lets her in, nobody welcomes her, it's kind of a mess. 
Um, line 121 here. Telemachus spotted her first. He was sitting with the suitors, nursing his heart sorrow, picturing in his mind his noble father, imagining he had returned and scattered the suitors, and that he himself, Telemachus, was respected at last. Such were his reveries as he sat with the suitors, and then he saw Athena. He went straight to the porch, indignant that a guest had been made to wait so long. Going up to her, he grasped her right hand in his and took her spear, and his words had wings. Greetings, stranger. You are welcome here. After you've had dinner, you can tell us what you need. Notice, this is another one of our major themes being introduced here, namely hospitality. So, the Greeks, as we've talked about at least a little bit at this point, have some pretty rigorous rules regarding hospitality. Um, hospitality is a really important idea for the Greeks, because again, this is a hostile place. Greece, with all of its crazy islands and unpredictable weather and, you know, craggy, rocky features, you need to know that generally when you walk into somebody else's territory, they're not going to kill you. So the rules of hospitality effectively dictate that you should always be good to strangers, that you should always help them, take them in, protect them, because one day you too will be some stranger wandering about the face of the earth looking for generosity and hospitality, and if you are good to the people who rely on you for protection, then hopefully one day you'll be able to rely on the others who you require for your protection. So notice that Telemachus when he sees that Mentes is standing outside the door and that nobody has welcomed him, like nobody's shown them in, nobody has shown him, you know, to food and drink, nobody's given him a seat at the table, he's indignant, he's upset. And this is a really interesting sort of dynamic here. You'll notice that Odysseus, too, has very strict rules about hospitality. He's very insistent that hospitality rules and regulations be respected and practiced, especially in his own home. So for Telemachus to get this upset about hospitality shows that he is trying to keep his father's legacy alive. He is trying to respect gods and men in the same way that Odysseus would have once upon a time. But notice, too, that he's kind of in a weird hospitality dilemma here. Because the suitors, you'll notice, are relying on Odysseus's hospitality, but also taking advantage of it. See, hospitality cuts two ways for the Greeks. Yes, when you are a host, you have to be generous. When somebody comes to your door expecting protection, requiring help or aid, you're expected to give them food, to give them water, to give them wine, to give them a place to stay, possibly some company for the night. Like, all of these things are expected from you as a host. But as a guest, you're also supposed to not be an asshole about it. Like, it is a huge violation for the suitors to have basically moved in, taken over the place, and started helping themselves to all of Odysseus's stuff, even after Telemachus is like, maybe you guys should leave. They're too strong. So again, if the rules of hospitality say you need to be generous to strangers, then the sort of reciprocal rule to that is you do not take advantage of the people who are hosting you. And the suitors are very much doing that. And as a consequence, the household is very much falling apart. In trying to accommodate the suitors, and then the suitors basically accommodating themselves, a lot of the functions that this household is supposed to do, a lot of the food and drink or the service to people who do need, in fact need help like mentees, have stopped. And that leaves Telemachus who should theoretically be doing other stuff, he's way more important than, you know, opening the door for people and making sure that, they're seen, that their needs are seen to, 
that leaves him to do all the work that one of their servants or slaves should absolutely be doing. So again, we're seeing this sort of dual version of hospitality here. On the one hand, Telemachus is desperately trying to keep his father's legacy alive, desperately trying to respect the gods by practicing good hospitality rules. On the other hand, he's kind of overstretched here because a lot of people have shown up to take advantage of his hospitality and are acting like terrible guests. Now, keep in mind that this is not the first time we've seen these hospitality rules in place. You know, part of the reason why Menelaus is so mad at Paris throughout the Iliad is because he sees Paris as violating the hospitality rules. Paris was a terrible guest. He showed up, took advantage of Menelaus' food and drink, took advantage of his hospitality, and then ran off with his wife. Not something you're supposed to do as a guest. Menelaus did everything right being a good host, Paris did everything wrong being a bad guest. Um, likewise, when we saw Diomedes bump into Glaucus, and they're both talking about, like, actually, my father entertained your father, and, you know, as a result, we have this bond. Hospitality there was respected and proceed continues to be respected because the two of them quit fighting, exchange armor, and, like, depart peaceably. These kind of relationships are a big deal in the Greek world. It's how you make alliances. It's how you make friends. It's how you build support systems, and it's how you get safely from one point to another. So Telemachus brings Athena in, and Telemachus mentions that things have been a little tough lately. As he says around line 170, please don't take offense if I speak my mind. It's easy for them to enjoy the Harper's song since they are eating another man's stores without paying anything. The stores of a man whose white bones lie rotting in the rain on some distant shore or still churn in the waves. Like, notice Telemachus resents the suitors being here and drinking all his father's booze and eating all his father's food. Like, he's mad about it. He just can't do anything about it. So when Athena sort of guides him, stresses that, you know, hey, surprise, Odysseus is in fact alive, it's just the sea that is keeping him back, Telemachus is hesitant here. You want the truth, he says, at line 231, and I will give it to you. My mother says that Odysseus is my father. I don't know this myself. No one witnesses his own begetting. Don't think about that too much. It will break your brain. Augustine says something similar in his Confessions, and it, like, is the foundation for some really crazy philosophy. No one witnesses his own begetting. If I had my way, I'd be the son of a man fortunate enough to grow old at home. But it's the man with the most dismal fate of all, they say I was born from, since you want to know. Notice that Telemachus seems to have some daddy issues here. Um, when we first meet Telemachus, you'll notice he's nursing his heart sorrow, picturing his noble father in his mind. Pay attention to that line, nursing his heart sorrow. We'll come back to that. Um, but also, as much as he is hope his, like fantasizing about his dad showing up and beating up all the suitors, he also kind of resents his dad because he's apparently the unluckiest person in the world and hasn't been home forever, and Odysseus and Telemachus can't even be terribly sure that Odysseus is, in fact, his father. Maybe it would be better if he was somebody else's dad. Maybe it would be better if he was some sort of illegitimate son. That would be, that would be advantageous, especially in this particular situation. Um, but notice, by the end of this conversation, Athena kind of magically gives Telemachus courage, 
Line 336, with these words the gray-eyed one was gone, flown up and away like a seabird, and as she went she put courage in Telemachus's heart and made him think of his father even more than before. Telemachus's mind soared, he knew it had been a god, and like a god himself he rejoined the suitors. Surprise! It's another theme here. We seem to be running into them a lot here in Odyssey 1. Yeah, so... Telemachus is also in this really interesting moment in his own life, and as much as this is Odysseus's story about coming home, this is also Telemachus's story about becoming a man. Like, yes, in the very same sense that we tend to mean it here, although the way that that looks in Greek society is obviously very different from our own. When we talk about being a man in our culture, we have a pretty vague, undefined view of what that involves. Like, somebody with a fairly crass mind is probably thinking to themselves, oh, so they had sex at this point. Like, that's what it takes to become a man. But we're talking about the bigger picture here. What does it mean to act like a man? And notice that for Telemachus, this sort of conversation where Athena gives him the plan, okay, so you go talk to Menelaus and see what he has to say about your father, and maybe you'll get some better intel from him. Um, like, this whole plan apparently inspires Telemachus, and you'll notice that his behavior changes here. Telemachus, who was sitting in the back of the room, nursing his heart sorrow, getting kind of, you know, misty-eyed and also grumpy about his situation, is now quite a bit more assertive. So in a moment, Penelope comes down the stairs. And notice, our first glimpse of Penelope is, you know, her grand descent down the stairs into this room where all the suitors are, like, hooting and hollering and making noise. And she asks the harper to quit playing the song that he's playing. Because the harper is playing the song about everybody coming home, because that's the song that everybody wants to hear these days. It's like the hot new song that everybody loves in, you know, the post-Trojan War ancient Greece, apparently. And, like, we even get told this. Like, Telemachus tells her, you know, this is the hot new song, everybody wants to listen to it, so, you know, shut up and go back up the stairs. Which we'll come back to. Notice that Penelope, though, this is heart-wringing for her. Stop singing this one, she says at line 360, this painful song that always tears at my heart. I am already sorrowful, constantly grieving for my husband, remembering him, a man renowned in Argos and throughout all Hellas. Now, notice Telemachus's response here is really interesting. Mother, he says, why begrudge our singer entertaining us as he thinks best? Singers are not responsible. Zeus is. Who gives what, who gives what he wants to every man on earth? No one can blame Phemius for singing the Doom of the Danaeans. It's always the newest song an audience praises most. For yourself, you'll just have to endure it and listen. Odysseus was not the only man at Troy who didn't come home. Many others perished. So on the one hand, you can sit here and think, and I literally have this used book that like somebody definitely wrote a lot of notes in, and uh, my previous reader literally says, yo, let the woman live. He's being so rude to his mother, oh my god, in the margins over here. Um, which, yes, that is true. Telemachus is being a little rude here, but he also makes a fairly compelling argument. Odysseus was not the only man at Troy who didn't come home. Like, yeah, this is a bad situation for a lot of people, and they're grinning and bearing it, so you probably should as well. But even more importantly, notice that as much as he is being rude to his mom, he's also trying to protect her. When Penelope goes back up the stairs, you'll notice all through the shadowy halls, the suitors broke into an uproar, each of them praying to lie in bed with her. Like, they start catcalling her. 
Like, they are praying to be in her bed as she goes back up the stairs. This is not a safe place for a lone, unprotected woman to be. As much as Telemachus is being really short with her, he is also being really short in an effort to keep her safe. But notice also what he says to dismiss her. You should go back upstairs and take care of your work, spinning and weaving, and have the maids do theirs. Speaking is for men, for all men, but for me especially, since I am the master of this house. Now again, by all means, read some misogyny into this. The culture would absolutely support this. They would absolutely see women as not belonging to the major front room where all of these men are hanging out, especially unattended by her husband that she's trying to be loyal to. That's all bad news to the average Greek audience. In the Greek household, women were very rarely allowed to go outside of the house, and they very rarely got to interact with guests unless they were in their husband's presence and it was part of, you know, making things hospitable for people. Wives were thoroughly protected, usually not allowed to interact with anybody but their ladies' maids, the other women of the household, etc., etc. So Telemachus isn't necessarily speaking out of turn here, but really importantly for us to notice is that last line especially since I am the master of this house. Telemachus, as much as he is dismissive of Penelope here, doesn't seem to be like this normally. And even the suitors remark upon this. Like, he follows this up by telling the suitors point blank to get out of his house, and they respond by all biting their lips, line 404, and marveled at how boldly he had spoken to them. Antinous, the head of the suitors, is like, dude, where did you grow balls? Telemachus has changed here. He really is asserting his authority as the master of the house. And it is about damn time for him to do that. Athena showed up not just to sort of like communicate to Telemachus and sort of insinuate to him that Odysseus is alive, maybe you know, kick him in the pants so he starts actually looking out to find Odysseus, but also so Telemachus would assert his authority, acknowledge his role and his responsibility as the master of the house. So Telemachus, all of a sudden, is a threat here. And that changes the way that the suitors interact with him as well. You know, just as I was saying, Telemachus has kind of been like milk toast, sitting in the corner and minding his own business, largely for his own self-protection and self-preservation. Here, he steps over to that line, and the suitors pay attention. Telemachus says, this is my house. So I will tell, you know, the lady of the house, Penelope, my mother, what to do in my house. And I will tell you what to do in my house, suitors. I will tell you to pack your shit and get out of here, and if you don't do it, there will be trouble. And they're like, who is this punk kid? Where did he grow balls all of a sudden? I guess it's time we did something about that. And in the chapters that we miss, books two and three, and honestly throughout the rest of the Odyssey, the suitors are going to repeatedly come up with assassination plots. They're going to be trying to kill Telemachus at every possible opportunity at this point, and Telemachus is going to have to do some pretty impressive footwork to keep ahead of them. Um, but we'll talk about that in the future, since, honestly, we're not going to see a whole lot of it in the course of this text. Um, the next passage we get, though, is Telemachus coming into Menelaus's home. And this is a passage I don't usually get to teach in my mythology class, so I'm psyched to be able to teach it here. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, because talking about all those themes that show up in book one is itself a lot of work. Um, 
What I do want to sort of stress is what's going on with the characters that we already know and love from the Iliad. And importantly, we get some awesome Helen insights here. Remember, Helen in the Iliad was a pretty complicated character just on her own. Like, where many Greek writers seem to propose Helen as the villain of the whole Trojan War cycle. You know, her perfidiousness is what caused the, all these people to die. Her, you know, unfaithfulness to Menelaus is, is why the Trojan War happened in the first place. Notice that Helen of the Iliad very much regrets all of her decisions, very much wishes she had never been born, very much is the victim of her own beauty in some sense. Like, even Priam and Hector both kind of acknowledge that she is guiltless here, um, that she was just sort of victimized by the gods. Here in the Odyssey, though, we get an even more complicated picture of Helen. Notice, first off, Telemachus comes into Menelaus's court with the help of Pesistratus, um, the son of Nestor, and Menelaus apparently doesn't know that it's Telemachus at the time that we see here. Like, Telemachus has not announced himself, so Menelaus is sort of, like, obliviously just taking this random guest under his protection. And once again, we have a sort of quasi-disguise here. Um, but then Helen comes down, and she immediately recognizes Telemachus. She sees that this is clearly Odysseus's son because he bears so much resemblance to Odysseus. And Menelaus is like, you know, you're right! Which, we should immediately see this as a sort of red flag as to Helen's character. She's really insightful here. Like, as much as we've seen some intelligent men and sneaky dudes and cunning people and so on and so forth, as much as, you know, the Iliad is full of plots and counterplots and so on and so forth... Notice that most of the time, the men of the Iliad are kind of dumb idiots stomping around beating the shit out of each other with not a whole lot of guile or insight going on. Helen, on the other hand, she immediately sees through. She immediately recognizes Telemachus, even though presumably she didn't even know Odysseus all that well. Though, as we'll see from her little story a moment later, she clearly spent quite a bit of time with Odysseus, more than we would have suspected just from reading the Iliad. So they talk a little bit, and we get Helen's discussion here. Um, what's more, notice Helen starts by drugging the party. Like, take a look at line 231 in book four. But Helen, child of Zeus, had other ideas. She threw a drug into the wine bowl they were drinking from, a drug that stilled all pain, quieted all anger, and brought forgetfulness of every ill. Whoever drank wine laced with this drug would not be sad or shed a tear that day, not even if his own father and mother should lie there dead, or if someone killed his brother or son before his eyes. Helen had gotten this potent drug, etc., etc. We get all this description about the location of the drug. Men and finally, she jumps into her own sort of speech here. Menelaus, son of Atreus in this line of Zeus, and you sons of noble fathers, it is true that Zeus gives easy lives to some of us and hard lives to others. He can do anything, after all. But you should sit now in the hall and feast and entertain yourselves by telling stories. I'll start you off. I couldn't begin to tell you all that Odysseus endured and accomplished, but listen to what that hero did once in the land of Troy where the Achaeans suffered. First he beat himself up, gave himself some nasty bruises, then put on a cheap cloak so he looked like a slave, and in this disguise he entered the wide streets of the enemy city. So, like, apparently at some point Odysseus snuck into Troy, disguised as a beggar, having, like, beaten the crap out of himself to give himself bruises and dis disfigure himself so he wouldn't be recognized. He looked like a beggar, far from what he was back in the Greek camp, and fooled everyone when he entered Troy. 
I alone recognized him in his disguise and questioned him, but he cleverly put me off. It was only after I had bathed him and rubbed him down with oil and clothed him and sworn a great oath not to tell the Trojans who he really was until he got back to the ships that he told me at last what the Achaeans planned. He killed many Trojans before he left and arrived back at camp with much to report. The other women in Troy wailed aloud, but I was glad inside, for my heart had turned homeward, and I rued the infatuation Aphrodite gave me when she led me away from my native land, leaving my dear child, my bridal chamber, and my husband, a man who lacked nothing in wisdom or looks. Notice the picture we get of Helen here. On the one hand, what's up with the drugs? Like, Helen apparently has no compunction about dropping this drug into the wine bowl that everybody is drinking from, basically drugging them into having a good time. Like, notice the symptoms of this particular drug. Stills all pain, quiets all anger, brought, brought forgetfulness of every ill. Whoever drank it would not be sad or shed a tear that day. Like, on the one hand, we should see this as dodgy. Like, this is not the first time that we're going to see some mysteriously powerful and insightful woman in the Odyssey drugging a bunch of dudes for their own inscrutable purposes, though this drug seems to be pretty benign and not nearly as dangerous as some of the other drugs we're going to run into by the end of this text. Um, but still, what's her, mo what's her angle here? Like, is she really just letting everybody have a good time? Or to, is she trying to, like, get people out of the way? Or, you know, is she making everybody ignore her own role in the whole events leading up to the Trojan War? Notice, too, that the story she tells is very Helen on her pro-Greek best. Like, she found Odysseus wandering through the streets of Troy, but she didn't give his identity away, and she did not, like, tell the authorities because, and I quote, I rude the infatuation Aphrodite gave me when she led me away from my native land, leaving my dear child. According to Helen, Aphrodite poisoned her mind when Paris showed up at her doorstep. Aphrodite is the one who made all this happen. Helen herself was basically bamboozled into following Paris back to Troy. But notice, that's not the only story about Helen we get here. Like, Helen encourages everyone, let's all tell stories, because that's a great way to pass the time, and also it's very thematically convenient because, again, memory is our major theme here, and storytelling is the major way that history and memory are communicated in the Greek world. But notice that Menelaus responds to Helen's story about, oh, I was such a good wife, and that time that Odysseus snuck into the city, I totally protected him and didn't reveal his identity because I really wanted to go home to my husband and to my children, who are right here in the room right now, so why would you ever think that I should be distrusted? Menelaus counters with a fairly passive-aggressive story of his own. A very good story, my wife, and well told. By now I have come to know the minds of many heroes and have traveled far and wide, but I have never laid eyes on anyone who had an enduring heart like Odysseus. Listen to what he did in the wooden horse, where all we Argive chiefs were sat waiting to bring slaughter and death to the Trojans. You came there then with godlike Diphobus. Some god who favored the Trojans must have lured you on. Three times you circled our hollow hiding place, feeling it with your hands, and you called out the names of all the Argive leaders, making your voice sound like each of our wives in turn. 
Diomedes and I, sitting in the middle with Odysseus, heard you calling and couldn't take it. We were frantic to come out or answer you from inside. But Odysseus held us back and stopped us. Then everyone else stayed quiet also, except for Anticlus, who wanted to answer you. But Odysseus saved us all by clamping his strong hands over Anticlus's mouth and holding them there until Athena led you off. Notice... On the one hand, this is a great, like, let's all tell stories about how awesome Odysseus is, which is really convenient from a storytelling standpoint. Like, we get more information about who Odysseus is and who his character is, in case you haven't read the Iliad, in case you don't know what the deal is with Odysseus. So, points to Homer for incorporating, like, let's all have a storytelling competition about how awesome Odysseus is as the introduction to the Odyssey here. But notice also that there's some pretty serious passive-aggressive vibes coming from Menelaus here. You know, the you he's pointing to here is Helen. Apparently, at some point during the Trojan War, as the Trojan horse was sitting within the, Greek, the Trojan walls, Helen herself showed up and started calling out to the horse with all the Greek dudes hidden inside in the voices of the various wives of the men who were literally in the horse. So Helen shows up and she's calling to Diomedes, in the voice of Diomedes' wife. And he's calling to Menelaus, presumably in her own voice, because she is Menelaus' wife, I guess, question mark, very ambiguous. She calls to Odysseus in Penelope's voice, and she calls to Anticlus in his wife's voice, and Anticlus is so moved by the whole thing that he's about to shout out, and Odysseus, only through his presence of mind, clamps his hand over his mouth, stopping him. On the one hand, hooray Odysseus, presence of mind, really smart, really clever, so on and so forth. On the other hand... Hey, Helen, what's up with that? If you were so awesome, if you were so pro-Greek, if you were constantly regretting your decision and blame Aphrodite for taking off in the first place, why did you have this plot where you're walking around the Greek horse calling out to each of the men who apparently you know exactly who they are in the horse? Did Odysseus tell you about this? Was that the whole spy story? Or did you just know because of some sort of crazy insight that you have? Do you have some supernatural insight into what the men are doing? Or were they just idiots and basically the Trojans were idiots for not recognizing them? And whatever the answer is, why did you do it? Why did you try to get these guys to expose themselves? Why did you try to sabotage the wooden horse gambit that ultimately takes down the Trojan walls? Are you pro-Greek or not? Where do your allegiances lie? I should stress, again, Homer is way more friendly to Helen than a lot of the Greek writers. Like, he never straight up comes out and makes Helen a horrible bitch for, you know, betraying her husband and leaving her family because Paris was hot and that was the end of it. We are given plenty of opportunities to see Helen as at least remorseful, regretting her decision, but we also recognize that she's more complicated than that. She's kind of of two minds about the situation, or so it would seem here. Helen's loyalties to the Greeks, unquestioned as they were in the Iliad, here in the Odyssey? We've got witnesses saying something else. Her motivations aren't clear. Maybe because she is just more complicated. Like, Homer doesn't ever at any point come out and say, you know, Helen is bad news. But notice that her actions throughout this thing make her, at the very least, dodgy. 
questionable. We're not sure why she's doing what she's doing. Maybe she regrets coming home with Menelaus. Maybe she always wanted to be with Paris, despite all of her protests to the contrary. Or maybe she's confused. Maybe she doesn't know what she wants. Or maybe she's traumatized. Can you blame her? Helen is fascinating here in the Odyssey. And unfortunately, this is all we're ever going to see with her. Like, shortly after this, you know, Menelaus gives his whole speech about the old man in the sea and how Proteus revealed the locations of Little Ajax and Agamemnon and their murders, as well as revealing that Odysseus was, in fact, alive, but basically held hostage by Calypso far across the sea, which is, of course, what gets Telemachus the information he needs to know that Odysseus is, in fact, alive, so he goes home relatively comfortable and, and happy about the situation. And we just leave the Telemachus Telemachiad altogether. But Helen, again, I'm just left with questions, which is kind of fascinating in its own right. Homer's depiction of her is complicated. And while I wouldn't go so far as to call this a theme, I would emphasize watch the ladies in the Odyssey. In the Iliad, there weren't a lot of opportunities for ladies to do stuff. Like, occasionally we saw Athena doing cool stuff, empowering heroes, stuff like that. We would occasionally get, you know, Andromache or Helen or Hecuba or even Briseis at times, you know, like, delivering a speech about, you know, their various relationships to the men involved. Like, we do get a glimpse of women's inner lives in the Iliad. Like, one of the passages that I unfortunately forgot to talk about is, you know, when... Like, Achilles is mourning Patroclus, and he gets all the women together, and he, you know, gets them all mourning. We get this little tiny hint from Homer that each of the women is mourning their own secret, like, regrets and stuff. Getting kind of this tiny little glimpse into the minds of all of these women who have been taken hostage and captive. Here in the Odyssey, though, the women tend to be way more outspoken, and Homer gives them a lot of screen time. We get to see a lot of what's going on in the minds of these otherwise marginalized and ignored characters. And importantly, that starts especially with Calypso. Like, remember, Athena is dispatching Hermes to go and fetch Odysseus from Calypso's island. Hermes shows up and he's like, hey, Zeus has decided it's time to let Odysseus go. Notice Calypso's reaction. This is line 118 in book 5. You gods are the most jealous bastards in the universe, persecuting any goddess who ever openly takes a mortal lover to her bed and sleeps with him. When Dawn caressed Orion with her rosy fingers, you celestial layabouts gave her nothing but trouble, until Artemis finally shot him on Ortigia, gold-throned, holy, gentle-shafted assault goddess. When Demeter followed her heart and unbound her hair for Iasion and made love to him in a late summer field, Zeus was there taking notes and executed the man with a cobalt lightning blast. And now you gods are after me for having a man? Well, I was the one who saved his life. On prying him from the spar, he came floating here on. Sole survivor of the wreck Zeus made of his streamlined ship, slivering it with lightning on the wine-dark sea. I loved him. I took care of him. I even told him I'd make him immortal and ageless all of his days. But you said it, Hermes. Zeus has the Aegis, and none of us gods can oppose his will. It's all right. He can go, if it's an order from above, off on the sterile sea. How, I don't know. I don't have any oared ships or crewmen to row him across the sea's broad back, but I'll help him. I'll do everything I can to get him back safely to his own native land. Notice Calypso's indignation here. You gods are the most jealous bastards in the universe. 
persecuting any goddess who openly takes a mortal lover to her bed and sleeps with him. Calypso points directly to the double standard here. The fact that Zeus and Ares and Poseidon and basically any male god can sleep with basically anything with a skirt and nobody gives them shit about it unless it's, you know, Hera who's jealous because other reasons. The gods can do this shit scot-free, but the minute some goddess decides to take on a lover, all hell breaks loose. Dawn sleeps with Orion, and all of a sudden Artemis is shooting him on Ortigia. Demeter apparently falls in love with a mortal man, and Zeus strikes him dead with a, a thunderbolt. What the fuck is that about? Here's Calypso taking in Odysseus, who she's fallen in love with, who she's been protecting, and protecting specifically because Zeus destroyed his ship with a lightning bolt. Zeus and the other gods have been systematically fucking Odysseus over for years at this point. She takes him under, his, under her wing, and now all of a sudden the gods are concerned about him? What the fuck is that shit? Calypso's mad, and has a right to be. We ought to be mad on her behalf. Notice, she cares for Odysseus. Like, legit cares. This is not just an infatuation. You know, Zeus sleeps with this woman and then he's done with her and, you know, it's totally fine that Hera makes her life a living hell. No, Calypso is committed. Even when, she, ultimately, Hermes says, hey, Zeus has the Aegis, what are you going to do? Her response is, okay, then I will help him in every way that I can because I legit love him. Notice the offer she makes to him. I was the one who saved his life from the wreck Zeus made of his streamlined ship. I loved him. I took care of him. I even told him I'd make him immortal and ageless all of his days. Calypso not just loves Odysseus like on the fling, we're just going to have this relationship and then when he dies off, I'm going to take him. No, she says, I will make you a god. Immortal and ageless. Like, not full godhood, I should qualify. There are many ways to become immortal in the Greek universe. Like, we even see another one of them shortly afterwards with Aino. It's this whole thing. Suffice it to say that she gives him a good offer. If you get immortality without youth, that's kind of a huge mistake. There's a particular Greek myth where this guy's like, hey, I want to be immortal, and the gods are like, okay, cool, and they make him immortal, but they don't make him, like, eternally youthful. And as a consequence, he just kind of, like, shrivels up and becomes this, like, pruny, shriveled old man. And then he, like, shrivels up even more, and finally he turns into a cricket. Which is awkward. I don't want to be an immortal cricket, thank you very much. Um, she says immortal and ageless. She's going to give him the full package. Eternal youth plus immortality. Like, not full godhood. He doesn't get to do the Heracles apotheosis thing. But nonetheless, like... Kind of a big deal here. Kind of a great offer here. And in fact, it's such a great offer that any Greek worth their salt would look at this and be like, she gave him what? Why did he pass it up? Which brings us to our next point. Let's talk about Odysseus himself here. The first time we actually encounter Odysseus, besides the stories being told about him, which, again, I think it's really cool that Homer opens up with, do you know the story of Odysseus? And all these people are passing the stories back and forth, and then finally we see him and notice, line 84 of book 5, Odysseus was sitting on the shore as ever those days, honing his heart's sorrow, staring out to sea with hollow, salt-rimmed eyes. 
This is not the Odysseus who snuck into Troy using his wily powers of disguise and sneakiness. This is not the Odysseus who had the presence of mind and quickness of temper to clamp his hand over the mouth of the guy who was about to betray them. This is not the Odysseus who designed the Trojan horse gambit in the first place. This is a gutted Odysseus. But notice the phrase here, honing his heart's sorrow. This sounds awfully similar to that passage that I told you about before, in where Telemachus is sitting around moping, nursing his heart's sorrow. Now, there might be some important distinctions between the specific words there. We're not going to dwell on it too much. What I do want to emphasize, though, is that the Greeks are going to see this as important. This idea of honing your sorrow, like sharpening it to a fine point, that's what honing means in this context. This implies that sorrow is something that Odysseus is working toward, that he is trying to achieve. And I want to stress this because in our culture we have a very different attitude towards sadness and to sorrow. Generally speaking, we like to say things like, you know, you can't grieve forever and, you know, you just got to move on with your life and you've got to, like, take your, take your blows and, and just, like, fight through the pain or whatever. You know, we generally think of depression as an illness, as something that makes you broken in some way. And as much as we are happy to treat it, we assume that it needs to be treated. Depression is not something that happens to you, it is something that is wrong with you and therefore needs to be fixed in our culture. And I say that not in any way trying to disparage people who are suffering from depression, but again, notice the language, you are suffering from depression. The way that we talk about misery, sadness, sorrow, is that something is wrong with you and it needs to be fixed, either medically or with chemical treatment or with psychological disposition changes. For us, a normal, well-adjusted person is someone who is happy all the time, which is honestly a pretty fucked up thing to say and to a pretty fucked up attitude, generally speaking. Um, but, you know, we'll get to that in never because that's not the subject of our class. Suffice it to say that the Greeks have a very different attitude. Sorrow is a weapon here. It is something that Odysseus is honing. It is something that Odysseus requires and spends time working on, making himself more sad and sorrowful. Now the question you might be asking is, why? Why does Odysseus want to be miserable? He seems to have a pretty good deal here hanging out in with this goddess who apparently loves the crap out of him and has offered him this really good deal to move in with him, her. Yeah, that's the question we should be asking here. And the answer is pretty obvious. Odysseus is honing his heart's sorrow specifically so he can resist this temptation. So he can turn down this offer. Now, I should stress right here on the outset, we have two very different ideas of how loyalty is supposed to work between Odysseus and Penelope. There is, as Calypso has pointed out, a double standard here. Loyalty for Penelope is, I will not touch another man until my husband gets home, no matter how long it takes him to get home. All these suitors are knocking on Penelope's door, and Penelope is keeping that door closed. Now, maybe that's because she doesn't like any of them? Fine. Whatever. More likely, it's because she is being loyal to her husband, loyal to Odysseus. And loyalty for a wife is keeping the household 
up to its standard as much as it, as it is possible to do so, which again, Penelope is doing some pretty Herculean efforts to try and keep her household, you know, intact in the way that Odysseus would want it, despite all of these people fighting her on this. But also being sexually pure, not touching another man. In the Greek world, this is really important. If you raise a bastard son in your household, you are undoubtedly letting somebody else's bloodline take over your affairs in your estate, which is bad from a political standpoint. Like, there are lots of reasons. We'll talk about that in more detail later. But suffice it to say, Penelope needs to be chased while her husband is not at home. For her to be anything less is disloyal. You'll notice, though... Odysseus sleeps with a lot of ladies while he is away from home. Like, during the Trojan War, nobody seems to have a problem with the men sleeping with concubines, with other men, with other people besides their wives. Nobody seems to question this. And yeah, that sucks. It sucks that women are not allowed the same sexual latitude as men are honestly expected not to practice. That very much sucks. More signs of misogynistic culture. Not questioning it. Homer seems to accept this as granted. He does not seem to be weighing in normatively any particular way here, but again, this is just the way the world works. If anything, though, notice that Homer recognizes this is a double standard. Calypso stands up and says, this is a double standard. If it is a double standard for the goddesses against the gods, you can expect that Homer would probably say it's also a double standard for the women against the men. So again... Keep track. Another point in the misogyn misogynistic culture category, but not necessarily the misogynistic writer category. Odysseus, though, is a different story. Homer does seem to give Odysseus a pass for his various liaisons with various women over the course of his journey. The fact that he is disloyal to Penelope sexually is something that Homer does seem to not have a problem with, and at this point we would kind of expect him to have a problem with that, if in fact there is a double standard being held here. But I should stress, just because Odysseus is sleeping around doesn't mean that he is disloyal. And in fact, I should very much point out that to the Greek reader, Odysseus has performed a positively incredible act of loyalty. And it was probably something that you missed in the text here. Notice, when Calypso actually gets the decree from Hermes, it's time to let Odysseus go home. She comes to Odysseus and she's like, guess what? You want to go home? Great. Hermes just gave me the news. Like, the gods are protecting you. Here's an axe. Build yourself a raft and get out of here. And she closes with a kind of, like, passive-aggressive response. Um, think of it, Odysseus, no matter how much you missed your wife and wanted to see her again, you spend all your daylight hours yearning for her. I don't mind saying she's not my equal in beauty, no matter how much you measure it. Mortal beauty cannot compare with a mortal. Notice, like, Calypso's getting a little, you know, bitchy here, for lack of a better word. Like, literally, my, you know, esteemed com prior commentator writes in the margin here, first of all, comma, bitch. Um, Odysseus responds, Goddess and mistress, don't be angry with me. I know very well that Penelope, for all her virtues, would pale beside you. She's only human, and you are a goddess. Eternally young. Which, again, my commentator is very annoyed with Odysseus for admitting this. But I should stress, from the Greek's perspective, this is not, like, a qualitative observation. This is not Odysseus is required to stand up and say, Oh, no, my wife is totally more... No, she's a goddess. Like... 
yeah, of course she's more beautiful. That's kind of her thing. That's the difference between goddesses and mortals. In the same way that a dude cannot go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ares and expect to come out alive, likewise, you do not compare your wife to, say, Aphrodite and say, my wife is more beautiful. No, it's just not a thing. Like, it's not even something that you can compete with. Um, I know very well the Penelope for all her virtues would pale beside you. Still, I want to go back. My heart aches for the day I return to my home. Notice Calypso's given him a really good offer here. Odysseus, be my husband. I will give you eternal youth, immortality. You can live with me in paradise, never wanting for food or for pleasure or for company. We will live together eternally. And Odysseus is like, no thanks, pass. This is not the same loyalty as Penelope is practicing. Again, he's sleeping with Calypso. Now it's heavily implied by the line, an unwilling lover made it to her eager embrace over at 155, that he's also kind of just her captive. He is effectively her concubine here. Like, I hesitate to use the word rape, but we are in that neighborhood. Odysseus is effectively a hostage of Calypso, having sex with her because, I guess, he has to? Like, a little while later, they, like, do in fact make love together, and, you know, it's sweet love, according to Homer, so it's, again, very ambiguous. The idea of rape as this horrible traumatic experience is, again, not within the context of Greek thought here. There is rape in the hard sense. We see it from time to time, but more often than not, when somebody is getting raped in the Greek perspective and world, they understand it as being just a thing that happens. You can be raped and enjoy it, or you can be raped and not enjoy it. It's, it's messy. Let's not dwell on it, because I know this is really traumatic for a lot of people, and while we do need to understand the Greek perspective here, we don't need to get that deep into a potentially toxic and ugly mindset. Suffice it to say, Odysseus is not here willingly. Odysseus is effectively her fuckboy, her sex slave in some sense. Um, he seems less unwilling than some, but more unwilling than others. Briseis seemed happier with Achilles than Odysseus seems happy with Calypso, if that's as good a sort of comparison as we're likely to get. But notice, this is a real good deal for Odysseus. Willing or not, most people would jump at the opportunity that is being presented here. Like, never mind, you know, some rich woman comes up to you, a young man, and says, you know, marry me and I will make you rich and happy for the rest of your life. No, we're getting, I will make you rich and happy for the rest of your life, and I will supernaturally make your life eternal, and you will live with me, who is stunningly beautiful, beyond the pale of any mortal human being. Like, remember that time that Odysseus showed up to try and marry Helen, and then settled for Penelope? Well, I make Helen look embarrassing and homely. Like, Odysseus is getting a freaking awesome offer here. And any Greek who is listening to this poem would be like, Dude, take the goddess. Like, you're on Let's Make a Deal. You see door number one open, and door number one is Life with Calypso Forever. You don't ask for door number two. You just don't. There's no need. We know what he's getting with Penelope. And yet somehow Odysseus prefers Penelope 
to this offer. And we'll see why, or rather, we'll see part of why. Importantly, in books 6 and 7 and 8, the stuff that we're going to, in fact, skip over, he has a pretty serious conversation with this young girl who also has the hots for Odysseus. You know, not that we're doing some Marty Stew stuff here, but, like, every woman who seems to bump into Odysseus immediately falls in love with him. Um, now, Sika, uh, the the, like, daughter of the Phaeacians immediately falls in love with Odysseus, and she's like, man, I wish I had a husband like you. And Odysseus tells her straight out, yeah, there's nothing better in this world than having a wife and helping your allies together and fighting your enemies together. In some sense, the reason why Odysseus shoots down Calypso's frankly amazing offer to stay with her and be immortal is because Odysseus knows that's not his role. That's too much for him. Remember how we talked about hubris in the Iliad? How Achilles is way overstepping himself a lot of the time by, you know, refusing to acknowledge his cooperation in the Greek army, or refusing to acknowledge the gods? How Hector makes a mistake by putting on Achilles' armor and therefore gets himself very much screwed as a consequence because he didn't actually beat Achilles? Hubris is knowing, is forgetting your place in the divine order, thinking you are bigger than you are or better than you are or whatever. This is Odysseus knowing his place. This is Odysseus being given the most hubris offer you are likely to receive, i.e. come and be a god, and turning it down. Because the fact of the matter is, most mortals who get to become immortal don't end up terribly happy about it. Like, we're not going to run into a whole lot of examples of that, but remember Ganymede? Like, we were talking about Ganymede a couple of lectures ago. He was the guy who was, like, so attractive that Zeus brought him up to Olympus to be his cupbearer. Ganymede is not a happy cupbearer, by the way. Like, yeah, he gets to sleep with Zeus from time to time. Yeah, he gets to hang around on Olympus. Yes, he's eternally young and immortal and so on. But he's also hanging out with those awful gods who you know are kind of the worst a lot of the time, and are really dangerous, and he cannot keep up with them. He's immortal. He's not powerful. He's not surrounded by people who he can understand and care about. It's awesome, but it's too awesome. It's too much for him. Odysseus gets this. So when Calypso says, I will make you immortal, I will make you my lover forever, Odysseus is like, actually... That sounds really good, but I would rather be with Penelope in Ithaca, where I belong, in the place that is appropriate for me, with a woman who is appropriate to me. Odysseus knows his place, and his place is at home in Ithaca, and that's why he's so desperate to get there. He gets that there's nowhere better in the world for him to be. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to forget it from time to time. Like, in the next section, between books 9 and 11, we're going to see a lot of potential threats to Odysseus's happy homecoming. A lot of potential opportunities and temptations that'll make him turn his head and possibly rethink whether or not he wants to, in fact, go home. Remember, Ithaca is great, but Ithaca is not, like, perfect. It's still a pretty rocky, craggy kind of land where it's hard to grow crops and it's hard to pasture sheep and cows and stuff. The people there are pretty tough and rough and, you know, Odysseus has to do some pretty impressive finagling in order to just get things moving smoothly. 
Calypso's offering him a much more idyllic life, but it's not suited to him. He's meant for something different. He knows he's not supposed to be eternally young and just having sex with some goddess. In some sense, he wants more than that, because that's what belongs to him. So keep this in mind. Odysseus isn't loyal to Penelope the same way that Penelope is loyal to Odysseus. He is not going to specifically abstain from having sex with women, specifically because a lot of the time he kind of has to. The narrative sort of boxes him into situations where he's sleeping with beautiful goddesses on a surprisingly regular basis. But that doesn't mean that he's disloyal. Odysseus has performed a monumental act of loyalty here. He has turned down an offer that any Greek would totally accept without a second thought. Odysseus is loyal to Penelope, because Odysseus knows that that's the best place for him. He knows that Ithaca is his home, and that home is greater than any of the temptations that might be offered along the way. So watch out for that. In 9 to 11, we're going to see Odysseus tell his own story. The chapters we're skipping are Odysseus landing on some random island, pretending to be somebody who he's not, i.e. like not telling what his identity is, yet another disguise here. But finally, as he's listening to a bard sing about, again, the homecomings from Troy, he also, like Penelope, gets all misty-eyed, gets starts weeping in public, and explains, I am Odysseus, I am a-trying to get home, here is my story. So books 9 to 12 are literally him telling his own story, singing his story as though he were a bard. It's a story within a story. Don't forget to tip your bard. Um, watch out for that. Like, watch out for the fact that it is, in fact, Odysseus telling his own story, and know that the context is he is telling it to a room full of people who are really excited to hear it. But also pay attention to the contents. 9 to 12 is probably the most famous part of the Odyssey, and we will spend a lot of time going over the nitty-gritty of exactly what's going on here. You'll notice that Lombardo does not cut anything from books 9 to 12. Like, we've skipped whole books in getting to this point, but you better believe we're going to get the whole text here. Part of it is because it's the most exciting part. Like, this is, you know, Odysseus runs into various horrible monsters and adventures and, you know, all sorts of crazy mythic stuff keeps entering the, the story. But at the same time, notice the patterns. Notice what threats are being presented all the time. And notice that many of those threats take the form of temptations. Temptations to either forget about going home, or alternatively, temptations to stay where they are and set up shop in a place that may actually be nicer than the place they're going home to. That offer that Calypso gives him is in fact something that we're going to see pretty frequently over the next few readings. So watch out for that, and I look forward to talking about it with you soon.